Well, ladies and gentlemen, we know we're in for a very great treat tonight. And it's with a very warm welcome that we greet Simon Russell Beale, our 24th Cameron Mackintosh Visiting Professor of Contemporary Theatre. And you will know from your programmes what a varied and wonderful selection of characters in the cast we've had over the 24 years. Um, but we do feel enormously pri privileged tonight to have Simon Russell Beale, who is very widely acclaimed as the greatest stage actor of his generation. So that is absolutely wonderful that he's been prepared to come and give us a year of his time. Um, his career, in a nutshell, a young boy chorister at St Paul's Cathedral, English at Keyes, Cambridge, I'm afraid, but never mind. <laughs> um, and we think now of Simon Russell Beale as synonymous with the stage and Shakespeare. But um, as ever, if one looks on the internet, that wonderful repository of trivial information, or maybe not so trivial, but certainly minutiae, and we look at the TV and film careers, um, you would find, as I found, 1996, second grave digger in Hamlet, <laughs> 1999, Napoleon in Blackadder. And now when I saw that, I, I realised, ah, yes. Um, 2004, Churchill in Dunkirk, 2010-11, the Home Secretary in Spooks. And I do remember the sinister character that he played in that. And then the bit I'm still not sure about, 2016, it says, filming Tarzan. And <laughs> now, not I must yet. be positive here, Simon. <laughs> I really can't quite credit that and do take that as a positive. But to be serious for a moment, his King Lear in 2014 was the ninth Shakespeare play that he'd been directed by Sam Mendes, the ninth. And Sam Mendes said of him, Simon's great art is that he can take a role and turn it until it catches the light. Sometimes he only needs to turn it two degrees and bang. So we, we are in for a great treat tonight and we're also pleased to welcome 15 members of the Beale family. So uh, <laughs> we realize they need to come in force to keep an eye on him as to what he said. And Simon's interlocutor tonight is Libby Purvis, who's a great friend of the college, read English at St Anne's, and uh, she, of course, is a very familiar and comforting voice on Radio 4, but also in, has excelled as a theatre critic. And we welcome also Paul and Rose Heine tonight with Libby. And the missing person from the cast tonight is Cameron, who, who is, uh, whose plane is running late, but he hopes to be here by six o'clock, so he won't hear me saying what a wonderful gift he's given to us to have this wonderful creative partnership um, over those 24 years. And not just with the Cameron Mackintosh professors, but also with the student drama, where the Cameron Mackintosh Fund pays for a student university drama officer whose role is to catalyse and oil the wheels of all the student drama in Oxford and helped greatly by one of the former Cameron Mackintosh professors, Thelma Holt, who remains a vital cog in all of this great work. So uh, back to tonight. The title for tonight's uh, uh, talk is Everything's Remade with Shovel and Spade, Playing Shakespeare with Simon Russell Beale.
I'll have to explain the title, won't I? <laughs> Everything's me remade with shovel and spade. Uh, sorry, Lydia. Just no, let's, let's have but that. The, um, uh, it's from one of my favourite Philip Larkin poems, which doesn't have a title. But the first line is, I, saw a, I see a girl dragged by the wrist through the snow. I don't know whether any of you know that. But it's a marvellous, um, very Larkin-esque analysis of the fact that life very often is about doing little, small, mundane things, and perhaps you'll reach some sort of uh, goal. And in the middle of the poem, he says, everything's remade with shovel and spade. And I thought that's actually rather applicable to Shakespeare, because, of course, nothing that I do or any of my contemporaries do hasn't been done before. So however I try and fool myself that I'm doing something original, it's probably not true. So everything's remade. That's the title. It's a good title. You, um, you once um, famously said that acting is three-dimensional <laughs> literary criticism, and you've always been really at home with textual investigation and, and history. And of course, we should mention you're a music historian as well. You know, we've seen that on television. So um, do you feel at home with this role as a professor? <laughs> well, I'm, uh, first of all, I'm thrilled to be asked, um, and thank you to the master, and to Thelma, and to Malcolm, and to Ellie, and everybody who's made this possible. Um, it's a bit daunting, um, but I do have a sort of academic bent, and um, just to let you know, I'm going to be doing a series of workshops. The first workshop will be in the last week of the summer term, which you call the... Trinity term, unlike in Cambridge, where we call it the summer term. Um, <laughs> and so in the last week of that, I'll be doing a workshop on soliloquies. And then I'm going to be doing a couple more workshops, and then I'm going to be doing a lecture on King Lear and Time of the Bathurst, just to let you know that's the, the plan of the year. Uh, and it is going to be basic, basically Shakespeare. But yes, I'm thrilled. It, it, it's um, it's um, a great honour, and thank you very much. And I walked around the library today, and I said to Roger... I got this little sort of flutter of excitement about <laughs> You're a fresher. Yeah. A feeling of a fresher. Um, there's a huge amount to talk about today, but um, because it informs what you do, there's a little moment of biography, uh, a medical family, most of whom seem to be here today, um, and you were a chorister. You went off yeah. at eight to be a St Paul's Cathedral chorister. Yeah. That's an extraordinary life for a child, isn't yeah. it? Because two hours a day, you're supposed to be a full-on professional. Yeah, probably more. And uh, just after I left, there was a documentary about the school, and they got letters of complaint that we were, we were um, rather overworked. I don't, I don't remember being overworked. It was the most extraordinary musical education. And um, I went when I'd just turned eight. And by the time, I would guess, I was nine, I probably, and this sounds like showing off, but I could probably sight read anything. Because at that age, you just absorb that, those skills. And um, uh, I've never lost that, and I've certainly never regretted it. And I think also the idea that for two hours or more a day, you were treated as professional. I always, I always say this when, when people ask about professionalism of, of choir boys, is that if you see a, a professional choir working, I'm sure some of you sing in choirs, and you'll see somebody make a mistake and go like that, it's almost invariably somebody who went to choir school, because 
the idea is that if you've made a mistake and you acknowledge it, the director of music doesn't have to go back over it um, because there's no time because the rate of work is so fast. It's a wonderful matrix for education, so, that, isn't so, it? Because I know, you're, I know. you're taking I mean, control yeah. of your own yeah. rightness and yeah. wrongness. And you were, treated, you were treated, yeah, you were expected to come up with the goods. Did you ever think of being a singer rather than an actor? Because your voice did turn into a pleasant tenor. Yes, I, mean, I, I, I started, uh, we'll do the biography first, but the, I started at the Guildhall after university as on the postgraduate opera course. Um, it, it was a nice enough voice, <laughs> but I don't, think it, I don't think it was going to be... I don't think I was good enough, actually. But who knows? I mean, I don't know. I, I, but the thing is that, and funnily enough, the Guildhall, as many of you will know, is both a drama and a music college. So over, the, over the, the main hall of the drama school, I could see all these actors and thinking... <clears throat> it looks good. <laughs> I should be over there, really. It brings us to the, the business of the musical ear in playing Shakespeare, in fact, in, in playing any text. Um, obviously, the modern approach, especially to Shakespeare, is, is absolute naturalism. But do you find yourself finding, of, finding melodies? That's a huge question, speech? though. Naturalism. I'm rather exercised by this at the moment. The musicality, I'm not conscious of it, although I do... Um, uh, last week, um, last Saturday, I don't... Some of you might have heard, there was a radio play on which was billed as Harold Pinter's uh, lost play. And it was actually a, a film script he wrote of Conrad's victory. It was you and Mark Strong. Me, me and Mark Strong. And Mark Strong was playing, as it were, the lead character. And I was doing the stage direction, the film directions, which Harold had, had written out, obviously. Um, in a very Harold style, actually, because it was almost no verbs at all. Um, so it'd be darkness. Man. Curtains, that sort of thing. Um, and Richard Dare was directing it, and I was in the studio, and I, and I was by myself, obviously, because I had nothing to do with any other characters. And I said to him halfway through, I said, this is the sort of work I absolutely love, because it's about... Because I had to deaden my voice as much as I possibly could. And it's the tiny, tiny musical changes in your voice that you can do on radio and on stage, which I love playing around with. I love, I love that... I love the tiny, tiny pitches that you can... I did a, there's a line in the, in the thing I'm filming at the moment which could be a funny line, but we decided that we'd do both a funny version and a not funny version. And again, it's to do with pitch, and it's to do with sound, as much as intention. And I, found that, I find that technical stuff absolutely fascinating. When I said naturalism in Shakespeare no, was a popular thing now, you immediately went, ha, ha, ha. Well, I no, I think, there, I, think it's yeah. very, very, I think it's very interesting, and it's something I want to look at this year, actually, in, especially in the workshop of the soliloquy. Um, because the demands of audiences have changed, even in the 20 years I've been doing Shakespeare, about what they will accept as convincing. Um, I would, when I first started out, we still had actors who would do John Wood, Alan Howard, the late Alan Howard, died a couple of weeks ago, um, who would, would do speeches of such beauty and Baroque elaborate... I mean, you must remember them, but, the, but I hear... John Wood's memorial service, he's dead now, but his memorial service, they played... Um, a speech from The Tempest at his memorial service. And it was, I, I said to one of my friends sitting next to me, he said, we couldn't do that now. Mm. We simply could, that would not, that would not be allowed. And he, even at the time, I remember, 
John was known to be a, a, an actor who would be unafraid of producing the Gothic cathedral of the speech. You can get away with that and, and make it beautiful, though, in soliloquy, can't you? If the character is alone and reflecting. Um, I mean, a Hamlet can do that, but it's, I think it's more in dialogue, isn't it, that there's a problem, that people, people want to feel that it's, it's absolutely coming out of them, right. that, that second made up as it goes along. These are so, these are so many questions to be asked um, this year. I mean, you mentioned two things. Making it up as you go along, which is, of course, is absolutely, one would think, the number one rule, and to a large extent it is. And making it up as you go along, both on the small scale and the large scale, is very important. Like if you're playing a Yaga, you, cannot, you cannot, cannot anticipate that half the cast is going to be dead by the end of the evening. Yago doesn't know that's going to happen. Uh, and that makes a difference to how you play the first scene. Equally well, it works on the small scale in that if you're doing one of Hamlet's first soliloquies, um, uh, oh, this tutu solid flesh would melt, which is like one long interrupted sentence, then I suspect that every fresh thought is like a, a blow in the, on the head. It's like, a, it's, like um, it's just come into his mind. Bam, 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 bam. And so therefore it's as fresh as a, yeah. as a thought. To be or not to be is a different type of speech, I think. Because it, you then come into the play of, uh, of Shakespeare's use of rhetoric, which means that I think to be or not to be, he knows pretty well where he's going. I don't think you can start a, a speech saying that is the question without at least knowing how you're going to analyse the question. Mm, so he's, he's writing a kind of essay on the subject, whereas in Over oh, the Two to Solid Flesh and Melt, he suddenly stops himself dead and says, yes. uh, no, oh, the Almighty had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. I, was, I could kill it, myself. No, I you can't. You can see yeah. it in the sort of the rhythm. I mean, uh, we talk about end-stopping, and, and, and I don't think to be or not to be is a particularly end-stop speech, you know, having, stopping at the end of each line, but it's fairly controlled. Um, the first speech, oh, this two, two solid flesh, see if I can remember it. Oh, this two, two solid flesh, there's the one big sentence in the middle, that it should come to this, but two months dead, no, not so much, not two, so excellent a king that was to this Hyperion, to a satyr, so loving to my mother that he might not be teen the winds of heaven, visit her face too roughly. Oh, must I remember? I, I can't, actually, I can't remember it. And there's a marvellous moment in the speech when he, when he goes, um, my mother was wearing the same shoes at her wedding that she wore at my yes. father's funeral. And it's that tiny, it's so Shakespearean that, isn't it? That tiny little detail which he focuses on in his anger and his grief and he's, he's, he's pissed off about her shoes. And it just suddenly comes in right in the middle of the speech with no grammatical connection. And the speech, as you, many of you know, leads to this great thumping, she married with my uncle, and then finally it rests. Now, that seems to me to be absolute classic, and we will look at it, classic case of thinking on the moment. I, I, think, this, I think it's a very interesting... Uh, there's no set rule about... A, when, as soon as you say a rule, like, you must think it fresh, and you, 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 my mind goes to, what about those moments when you don't? It's basically what I'm saying. Your Hamlet was remarkable. I mean, it's, it's gone down sort of history of Hamlet's as remarkable. It was, I know, an intense time for you because I think you had just lost your mother not long before. Yes, a couple of months before. Um, when you're going into a role where you are having to throw absolutely everything you've got at it, 
Is it difficult if you have, I mean, is, is it redemptive if you've had a, a personal great sadness and a shock? Or I, is can't, it, I can't, I can't in a sort of Proustian way do, do the route. But there must have been a route between mum's death and doing Hamlet in my mind. I'm, I wasn't conscious of it in the sense of, oh, I'm using this. But um, there must have been a sense. And I, I, I was very privileged, not many people have that privilege, to do the great play about grief, you know, as, a, as, as my gift to her. But, uh, and I think, I, you know, the thing about Hamlet, and this is also something I want to look at this year, is about getting rid of preconceptions. And I originally was going to do Hamlet with Sam Mendes, and he had to drop out to do a little film called American Beauty. Um, <laughs> actually, funny enough, he'd, he'd already done American Beauty. He had to drop out in order to... He suddenly realised this film was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and he became a bit busy. And a friend of mine called John Caird took over. And John is a very gentle man. And I suspect that this Hamlet I would have given with Sam would, was different from the Hamlet I would have given. You talk the business about preconceptions is interesting because what we get now is we get directors who've got very strong concepts of updating the setting. It's very rare to get a sort of tights and cloak production anywhere that isn't sort of amdram. And so, I mean, uh, Mendes Lear recently was a sort of bitter East European dictatorship with a rather fine, brutal statue of you as a sort of <laughs> Ceausescu Lenin, figure. Yeah. Um, and uh, Nicholas Heitner's Timon was modern uh, with the art world sponsorship and so on. And I mean, there was a Lear down in, in Bath recently where um, it was a, it, he was a mafioso. Um, you know, and his daughters were sort of chucking eyes around in cocktails. Mm. Um, when when it's at that stage, when the director says, right, okay, we're going to do this one in space, we're going to do this one in 1940 or whatever, how is that for an actor? Because you must have thought through the part a bit, thought about how you might take it, and then you have to fit it into the, whatever culture he's put it in. Well, if you're, if, you're, if you're the actor lucky enough to be playing Lear or Timon, with any luck, the director will tell you early on <laughs> that he's going to set it in space, and then you have to say, <laughs> why? And if... <laughs> If your reasons are convincing, I'm perfectly happy. I mean, I, I and thing uh, again, this has changed over the 20 years. Um, uh, when I started, um, I sound like an old actor, don't I? But when I started, there were, I think, more productions where you had a sort of completely sealed in holistic setting for Shakespeare plays. So um, Trevor was the master of that. So, and all's well, absolutely within. Edward in England, or his fantastic Merchant of Venice set in modern dress. And it was sort of complete as a picture. It was novelistic. Mm. Uh, the attitudes changed, obviously, with, with various uh, younger directors coming up and throwing it about and not... And that Sam was one of them, making it non-specific. There was a whole... That seems now to have gone away a bit, and people are going back to specificity. Now, it, as I say, it depends on if you're playing time. And I said to Nick, we want to set it in uh, modern dress. And more importantly, and more significantly, uh, I, Nick said, I want to set it in modern London. And when you say, why? And he said, it's absolutely obvious. It's a play about the mismanagement of money. And there's two major cities in this world that are suffering um, 
rather severely from the mismanagement of large sums of money, and one of them is London. And it would be, it would be almost irresponsible, especially since, of course, Shakespeare almost invariably does write about London rather than Venice or... or uh, that's not entirely true, but you know what I mean. There's a lot of references to London. Um, you might as well set time in London as, as a modern London because it, it sings. But the joy, the joy of the time and as well is that it's not a play that everybody knows by heart. It's not one anyone's ever going to set for GCSE or A-level. And therefore, Maybe Nick sure. Keitner yeah. did mess about a little bit. Well, that was extraordinary. The, the, <laughs> the, um, there were a few very modern lines in it, and you kept thinking, hang on, is that really oh, I don't, Actually, I don't think we had modern lines. They might have modern words. It had modern uh, words kind cause, of cause you must have written snuck about it. in, yeah. yes. Um, I saw the, Michael the, Billington kind of with his text <laughs> in the front row. <laughs> the, the main thing we did with time, and as you all know, it's an un, it's a, it's, it looks like an unfinished play or a sketch. Not a sketch, more than a sketch. Uh, but, and Peter Brook famously did it as it sits in the very bad quarto, which has been handed down to us in. Um, but I think Nick quite sensibly decided there were bits that simply wouldn't, that don't really work. There's a great big scene with Alcibiades in the generals which has no reason to happen and no consequence either, really. And there's a rather wearying uh, jester character. So they, they got cut out. And we were quite ruthless about, I'm very ruthless, about if a line is, seems to me needlessly elaborate, for instance, by re reversing the syntax. Um, um, there's a line, of beasts and man, the absolute something. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why do you say the absolute something of beasts and man? Because it, at least the ear goes, oh, yes, I know what that means immediately, rather than going... I need to twist that round. So I'm, I'm quite ruthless about that. I think, you know, I prefer the audience to understand, basically, at first hearing. And, the, and we did also, uh, we kept this secret for a bit. But the last line was from As You Like It, which uh, <laughs> absolutely thrilled me. Um, because we wanted a line that led to some hint of of the fact that things were going to get better. Uh, there's a promise of things getting better, and so he looked up a word, I can't even remember what the word was, liberty, on the computer in the, in the rehearsal room. The stage manager found a lovely line from As You Like It about going forth to liberty. And we thought, that'll do, we'll stick that in. Timon, of course, breaks down in, in the second half, rather brilliantly and rivetingly, but Lear, Lear, that is the big breakdown part. And I know that you, you've said, and in fact your family have confirmed, that uh, you wanted to know quite a lot about dementia, so you mm. shot back to the, the um, medical members of your family. It was a terrifying portrait, in, in a way, of, um, of that retrogression, in, yeah. infantilization, where he suddenly gets really into the dirty songs and the oggy, 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 and the soldiers sort of throwing things around and you can see why Goneril can't bear him. But at the same time, you had the job of making it quite clear to us why he was a great monarch and why people loved him. You, yes, you, you were balancing all the time between utter... I mean, I think I said in the review, you know, the thing about you, you turned from Stalin to Santa Claus within a line. Mm. You know, and you were doing a lot of that in, in the Lear. Funny enough, Sam and I had a little bit of a, a, a difference of tone talking about concept, because... Sam is very keen that the first beats of Lear, should, he should be a very nasty old man. <laughs> I think eventually we met in the middle, that I think um, uh, 
I think he's a nasty old man, but he must have something about him that is lovable, otherwise you wouldn't have Kent or even Edgar, who mentions him quite fondly, uh, and certainly Cordelia. Um, so I, I, that, was, it was, that was quite a difficult one to go. I think that first scene is an absolute bugger. Um, well, nobody knows really why, why he's, he's doing, doing this unless uh, he's already it doesn't, it doesn't, lost it. And does it seem to make any political sense at all? Um, the dementia thing is the only time I've ever done this with a Shakespeare play, and, I, and um, I'm very pleased I did it. Um, but I suddenly thought, hang on a minute. We, we, I mean, the dementia is so much in the, in the news. And some of the things that he seemed to be doing seemed to be a pretty accurate um, picture of what we now know about dementia. Um, it isn't wholly accurate. I mean, you don't recover from dementia for a start, and I think Leah probably does recover um, a bit. But anyway, it was the first time I've ever done that, and I found that absolutely fascinating, because I, I think Shakespeare, with his unbelievable eye, must have seen, must have seen old men who act sexually inappropriately, for instance, in the mad scene. Um, certainly the bursts of anger, and the, uh, as always with Shakespeare, you, f you discover something in the part that surprises you. Like, for instance, I hadn't realised that he's obsessed by crying. He's obsessed, he worries about crying. Yes, a line change, that there's a line which often, they cannot touch me for coining, it's often reproduced yes, as, change. you did it as crying. They cannot touch me for crying. Which actually yeah. is an alternate reading, isn't yeah. it? That's where the textual scholarship yeah. comes in. Yeah. Because coining, what does that have to do uh, with And anything? it's also the first line after he's been off for a bit, so you think, make, again, make that line clear, they cannot touch me for coining. They cannot touch me for crying, and the man, as I was, is dressed as if he's just run away from, a hospital ward, and you think, oh, that makes sense to me. That the nurses have been saying, shut up, you know, stop crying, and um, and and a lot of you know a lot of people. I'm of an age now when a lot of my friends are having to to, to deal with this, and I um uh, I I I'm also was very concerned about, and this was also the same with false stuff, which I did on television, about sentimentalising. Shakespeare's characters sometimes. And um, the very famous scene when Lear, when Cordelia comes back to Lear and he's asleep. And um, it's always known as the reconciliation scene. And there's a danger, isn't it? It's like. I am a very foolish, fond, fond old, old man. man. And to speak plainly, I'm not in my uh, perfect mind. Uh, uh, not in my perfect mm. mind. Uh, but it's like the Moody Dane, isn't it? You just think, oh, don't say Moody Dane to me because otherwise I'm going to start limiting <laughs> my thought about it. And reconciliation, it's the man is an old man and his first lines are angry. You do me wrong to take me out of the grave. I am bound upon a wheel of fire that mine own tears do scald like molten lead. If that's a reconciliation scene, it's got a long way to go, do you know what I mean, from that. If that's the start of it. And, um, again, yes, Shakespeare does hint at it in the simplest possible way, it seems to me. I mean, he's got the heartbreaking line, I fear not in my, my, my right mind. Um, but right at the end of the thing, he says to Cordelia, will you walk? And that that, like Beatrice and Benedict, like all those monosyllabic lines, will you walk is the, is the heart of, seems to be the heart of that scene, where they begin 
to become reconciled. But I, I, I was very, very keen that, that that scene should be an angry old man in the wrong clothes. And we know what it's like when we see people in hospital in the wrong clothes, you know. They shouldn't be wearing those pyjamas or they, shouldn't, they should be up and out and sitting in a chair or something, but they're, they're in bed wearing the wrong clothes. And, and it's, 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 it's painful and it's uh, embarrassing and she doesn't know how to behave and he doesn't know how to behave. Perhaps they'll reconcile. And I think from then onwards, the whole play, actually there are only two more scenes after that. One scene which I think is a real puzzle uh, which I want to talk about when I lecture on it, but the, um, the one where he asks Cordelia to go to prison with him. Yeah. And then, of course, the final scene when she's dead. So it seemed to me that Lear was actually not a, not a, a play about reconciliation, but a play about the, the failure. Mendes, uh, one, other, one other cheeky thing Mendes did, which made absolute sense, oh, was yeah. what happened to the fool. Oh. Because normally the fool just kind of vanishes. And then when he says, my poor fool is dead, some people say, well, it actually means, that means Cordelia, you know, whatever. But actually, you kill the fool. Yeah. And that, that's a shocking moment. You could feel it go through the audience like a, like a what? Well, again, this goes back to uh, about how, how much he is to blame for his own... I mean, God, God knows nobody deserves to go what Leo goes through, but, but how much he is in some sense... Uh, responsible for what happens to him. And, um, you know, I suspect that he was a tough old bird and in his losing his mind, he's perfectly capable of caving somebody's head in with a bit of lead piping, which is what he did. Indeed. And, um, I, you know, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit, you know, it, and it, but it, I mean, it has, has enormous repercussions over the whole play, uh, enormous repercussions for the women in the play. Because I think they've got a perfectly good argument. Yes. That's my problem with Leah. I think they're perfectly within their rights. It seems to me it's, it's interesting with, it, with the, the depth of thought and the depth of, the depth of history and then the depth of sort of re revisionism that you, you do with Shakespeare that it, it, it manages, it's a useful thing to be a serious Shakespearean actor because it does feed into all the other work you do. I want to talk about one or two of the other plays that we've yeah. seen you in. Uh, you were Stalin in that extraordinary play about Bulgakov, Collaborators, and sort of, uh, it's Stalin, he's terrifying, but mm. there's a twinkling, childlike, mm peasant cheeriness about your Stalin, which absolutely chilled the blood. Was it a hard one to find that? But it's funny when the master actually was reading all these war leaders I played, which I didn't realise. <laughs> Napoleon and Churchill and then Stalin. Um, he, he was, he was uh, interesting because, and actually does feedback that Shakespeare fed in and out of it, in the sense that I have played the one c character in Shakespeare who I think is irredeemably evil, who is Iago. I think almost everybody else can be excused away, but I think Iago probably can't be. So I started off sort of in that area. And the other thing I thought about Iago, that he's not very clever. And, uh, and I had in the back of my head the banality of evil, you know, Hannah Arendt's um, brilliant definition of Eichmann, wasn't it, the banality of evil? In the back of my head, banality of evil, these are, this, is not, this, is not, this is not clever to behave like this. 
And I don't think Iago is clever, and I, I stick to that. I think he's a, a very second-rate second man. Uh, I did some research on Stalin, which, of course, you have to do if you're doing a part like that, unlike Shakespeare, which basically, uh, other than for my own enjoyment, uh, there doesn't seem much point in reading about the history of England for Henry IV, for instance. Um, and I suddenly realised that I was assuming Stalin was a thug and not particularly bright, and actually, I think, unfortunately, he was very, very clever indeed. And then suddenly the whole thing changed, because suddenly the, the twinkle had to come in. Well, the vanity. The, it was the vanity. He wanted a fabulous... wanted Bulgakov to write a fabulous biography of him. Mm. You know, oh, I like that scene. I like mm. it where I do that. You know, mm. that, that's... And, he, uh, and he, needed, he needed to charm Bulgakov. Um, and I remember reading about... I don't know if this is historically right. I can't remember the exact details, but Stalin... I think after Lenin died, he got... He persuaded Trotsky, who was a hypochondriac. Somebody here will know this much better than me. I think he persuaded Trotsky to, to leave Moscow to go and get some really good tr treatment down in the Crimea. And so Trotsky missed the funeral. So the one person, the main person walking behind Lenin's coffin was Stalin. And you think, Trotsky, you absolute bloody idiot. <laughs> you know, that's and that, that seems, to be, seems to me a type of, of cleverness that Stalin has that Iago doesn't. You've always seemed particularly sensitised and, and beautifully at home with the idea of failure. There's almost Graham Greene redemptive quality of hopelessness, Constantine in the seagull, uh, the philosopher in jumpers. The, I remember in, in The Philanthropist, Christopher Hampton, you, you were resisting seduction. Yeah. Um, the the girl, girl comes up and has a go, and, and the look of absolute horror on your face is... You, you, you do quite like playing hopelessness, don't you? Sort of hopelessness which, which we have to love. Yes, I wonder whether it's a bit easier. <laughs> um, I was quoted once as saying, um, I, 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 I come onto stage sideways. And I don't even remember saying that, but it's, I, I, it's quite a good misquote if it's a misquote. Because being shy and a failure is somehow easier to start, start <laughs> off a play. <laughs> Will you say and and I, I do remember when I did, I did a part called um, Sir Harcourt Courtley in a play called London Assurance and who was the most confident man in the world. And I remember before I used to go on, I used to have to pretend to be another me first. So you had to put another layer But you couldn't go Simon Russell Beale, Sir Harcourt Courtney in one step. You had, to, you had to adopt a really confident acting persona before you did that. And you danced, and you got a part right. in the Royal Ballet as a result and of I it, got a and part the rest of the Royal is Ballet. history. But the talk of the, the, the lighter work and, and that, that business, you, you once said something wonderful to me in an interview on, on the radio where um, we were talking about the king in Spam a lot, and you'd been talking before about textual analysis, and I said, OK, so what lies behind your version of the king in Spam a lot? And you said, in a terribly sad voice, you said, deep down he knows he doesn't have a horse. 
the man behind him with the coconuts. And it's, it's been a mantra of mine ever since, because I think it's a huge truth about life. You know, all of us, even masters of colleges, deep down, they know that they, someone's they they're banging their coconuts. But you, when you... <laughs> but when, when you do the, the, the lighter work, which obviously every, every actor does, and, and you, you seem to get great pleasure out of it. I mean, there's a spam a lot. There's privates on parade and fishnets and drag. There was, um, as Captain Terry, or the chap in the thriller, IR-11 thriller, Death Trap, which was, as a play, it was really kind of quite toshy thriller. But you always seem to kind of add in depths of the character and, and reality of the character. And I think I wrote once in a, in a review, you know, why is he doing this? I thought, actually, it's like complaining you've got caviar on your fish fingers. You know, why <laughs> I bother? But you do, you, you are always searching, however light the play seems to be, or the television program, you're always searching for somebody, somebody important. The um, death trap was uh, interesting in that I think I rather forced, uh, forced the issue on that one because I actually tried to turn in a performance of a, of a man absolutely distorted with the love of a, a young guy who's just walked into his house and ripped apart by his own failure to write a successful, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And actually the play I don't think su supported that... Um, and do you, think it's I, a, do you think it actually that's damages actually, it? I think I'm better than the play. If I think you start turning it into Chekhov, it right, Yes, I think I got it. the tone a bit wrong. And I think, I think um, but I think you, you um, that the, enjoy, the enjoyment, as always with comedy, is about, is about pain. It's such an obvious thing to say, isn't it? So that, therefore, the process of, of doing comedy is actually, in essence, no different from the process of doing a serious play. What I don't agree with is that actually, and I, well, I was going to mention this right at the beginning about tonally changing a line from being a funny line to a comic line, is that I do think there is a difference in playing. I don't think, I don't think it's true that you, if you play a situation truthfully, it must necessarily be the funniest option. Do you see what I mean? It's very often said to me that, you know, as long as you're truthful, you don't have to play up. It's not quite true. And those of you here who've acted comedy will know that it's... You can be truthful just with a little bit of... It's a little bit of a heightened mm. twist, isn't it? But I think, you know, restoration comedy is about humiliation, isn't it? Mm. And so you have to go through... If you're playing a fop, which I, I did once, twice, um, you have to play the humiliation properly. Um, so therefore it's no different than playing Hamlet in that sense. <coughs> But in Privates on Parade, there you were as Captain Terry, the sort of <coughs> middle-aged, sort of getting on a bit, big guy in fishnets, mm. you know, who was... And, and actually, there was a streak of real pathos in that. It was a well-written <coughs> play, and there was, there was a moment where you just sort of sense a loneliness and a kindliness mm. in, in him, you know, which, which was well, very moving. Well, I mean, frankly, that's easy with Privates on Parade because the situation was so... <coughs> to be a gay drag artist, and it was based on a real person, the pre-Wolfenden pre sort of... Pre in 1947. Okay. You know, <laughs> it's a brave man who does that. And uh, it wasn't, in, in that sense, it wasn't an effort to try and find... I mean, the situation itself was... Actually, funny enough, in that play, it's all set in Malaya. Um, and I kept on thinking of... I think it was... The, what is the, somebody here might know, but it was one of the coldest winters in... <laughs> of the century, I think, just after the war. 
So funny enough, my mind was actually always in England about how cold it was and how lovely and warm it was in Malay. <laughs> think of Malay. <laughs> we have to, I think, Roger, we're, we're, shall we be on time? Shall we be like engineers and finish things at the correct <laughs> time? <laughs> I, I know you feel the same as I do, that we, we've had a wonderful insights from uh, Simon tonight. So thank, thank you very thank much you indeed. Thank, thank you very much. much.